Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Rick Rule is a favorite in the Real Vision community. If you'd like to meet up with Rick and get a master class from the master himself, you'll want to head to the Rick Rule Symposium on Natural Resource Investing in Florida, July 23rd to the 27th. You'll get access to industry insiders, elite bullion dealers, gold council members, and uranium pros. There is special early bird pricing for in-person and virtual sets until June 30th. Just head over to realvision.com forward slash Rick. Where are we in the commodities cycle? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Rick Rule, President and CEO of Rule Investment Media. Hi, Rick. It's great to see you again. Maggie, it's great to be back with you. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah, and we're sort of, um, we're talking just as we're closing out the first half of the year, right? This week is going to be the final for the week, the, the quarter and the and the half year. And when we think about it, we've had so many guests coming on talking about what a complicated macro environment this, right? We have central banks either tightening or promising to hold rates higher for longer. Uh, we have a U.S. economy, which is showing unexpected staying power, as we saw in housing and consumer confidence data that was released today geopolitical drama in Russia, a Chinese economy, which appears to be losing momentum. So there's a, there's a lot of factors feeding into this for investors to kind of sift through. How are you thinking about commodities against this backdrop? Well, I, I think the outlook is mixed, but mostly bullish for reasons that we'll discuss later. Uh, I think it's likely that we continue to experience uh, supply shortages uh, in commodity, not as much demand-based uh, as, as in fact, a response to declining sustaining capital investment. But as you also point out, there are many more geopolitical concerns, some of which have been expressed in the market so far, and some of which will be uh, expressed in the market uh, in the markets to come. I note too uh, that the awareness that the policy community has and the awareness that the uh, government has, around these supply shortages are starting to increase investor interest, both official sector and private sector interest, something that we haven't seen for 10 years. Now, when you're talking about uh, around the supply side, are you talking across the entire commodity complex? Are you more specifically talking about metals or rare earth materials, things that go into semiconductors? How are you thinking about that? Almost the entire supply side, uh, as an example, in the biggest of all extractive industries, oil and gas, it is estimated that the oil and gas industry as a whole is under investing in sustaining capital to the extent of about a billion dollars a day, $365 billion a year. The uh, industry can continue to do that for a little while, but over two or three years, uh, Deferred sustaining capital investments like that impair the industry's ability to produce oil. Uh, it isn't that we haven't discovered the oil. It isn't that we don't know where it is. It's that we are under investing in, as an example, development drilling and infrastructure con uh, construction. The consequences of that can be seen historically in places like Mexico and Venezuela, uh, potentially very large oil producers, 
company, countries, pardon me, that have underinvested in sustaining capital and, and have temporarily or perhaps even permanently impaired their ability to produce. I'm talking about this from an illustrated, uh, illustrative sense of uh, point of view. But we've also seen uh, historical underinvestment really across the spectrum in most commodities. We're starting to see that addressed in some of what are now called the battery or the electric metals. As an example, there's been a real surge uh, in exploration for lithium. But the surge that we've seen in lithium exploration has not been repeated in other critical metals, things like zinc, things like tin, uh, things like even copper and cobalt. We have had systemic underinvestment in the means of production around natural resources for a very long time. And the chickens are coming home to roost there. Yeah. When we're talking about, I want to talk a little bit about that, and our regular viewers know that we talk about those those um, sort of necessary rare earth metals, the complex around EV, however you want to categorize it. We talk about that. We've talked about that a lot, and we'll continue to do deep dives on that. When you're talking about energy and the underinvestment in in, in oil and oil and gas, why is that happening? Uh, I... Because the majors are I, not, they. I, I just saw a headline recently saying that they're, you know, they're once again deferring from capital investments. Is it, is it the, the sort of ESG side of it? Is it because of the price, price I sensitivity? Think it, I think it is the ESG side. The industry, the private industry, is is exhibiting record high cash flows. Mm. Uh, there's money there to invest, but you know the the policymakers are schizophrenic. On the one side, our president has told the domestic oil industry to increase production so he can bring down politically sensitive gasoline prices, while at the same time, he says he's going to put them out of business uh, in 2030. The idea that he's going to put the oil industry out of business in six years is not a wonderful way to get them to invest uh, tens of billions of dollars today. And, and this isn't a, a criticism that's leveled solely at Biden. Uh, the same has been true for Trudeau. Canada does one thing really well, produces oil and gas. It's what the country runs on, yet they discourage it. <laughs> uh, you know, we've seen this official sector schizophrenia for a very long time, and they being they being the political classes, I think that have done their best to not only discourage by jawboning investment in oil, in oil and gas and natural resources, but also uh, actively try to lobby uh, institutional investors and banks uh, against natural resource investment, particularly natural resource investment that is carbon generative. Mm. It's interesting. I, I spend a lot of time um, in other areas talking on a pretty granular level about this stuff too. And, and there's much more nuanced conversations when you're in other circles. I'm just wondering in this environment when we saw the shortages, you know, I feel like there was pre the invasion of Ukraine and there was a, a, a sort of black and white rhetoric around this anyway, and a push to sort of move very quickly. And then the realities of what happens if you don't have a well thought out transition, um, there was some thinking that that would change the dynamics, that that would change the conversation. Um, but it sounds like you're saying that hasn't happened or you're not seeing signs of that. You're still seeing kind of widespread discouragement. I, I think Russia and the invasion of the Ukraine was the catalyst. But I think that the seeds were sown for that. Uh, well before the Russian investment in the Ukraine, uh, the Rus Russian invasion of the Ukraine, pardon me. 
I think what you're seeing is a reaction to the fact that the world's supply chains with regards to natural resources and energy in particular were compromised, that we had had a long time underinvestment, and also that investment in hydrocarbons was regarded as politically correct. Uh, the big thinkers in the world talk about a transition away from oil and gas, and they talk about peak oil demand occurring in 2030. Let me leave your audience with one statistic about that. We have now invested over 40 years, almost $5 trillion in alternative energies. And I'm not a critic of alternative energies, but we've invested $5 trillion in them. And we have reduced the market share of fossil fuels from 82% all the way down to 81% for a $5 trillion investment. What would it take to get the market share of fossil fuels down to 70% in a market where demands of all for all forms of energy are increasing? The policymakers need to understand, but more particularly, your listeners need to understand that peak oil demand, just as an example, will probably occur in 2060. There's nothing nuanced about this. There's nothing uh, narrative about this. This is pure arithmetic. Mm. The big thinkers in the world don't seem to want to understand that a billion people on Earth have no access to primary electricity mm. and two billion people on Earth have access to intermittent or unaffordable electricity. What that means is that the world is going to need more of all forms of electricity more of all forms of energy going forward. And that's going to that's going to uh, require, whether the big thinkers like it or not, uh, both uh, oil and gas and coal. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Okay, so I so I'm going to veer it back onto the a little bit to the markets um, right now because I think there's a really extensive political conversation you can you can have about that. I mean, it's a really interesting one. Um, you know, for those who want to go down that rabbit hole, there are lots of good places um, uh, to go, including we're going to get to this a little bit later. But Rick uh, is holding a symposium in Florida where they're going to talk a lot about this too. Um, of of I think at some point we're going to have to have everyone, no matter what side you are on. And unfortunately, this is very tribal and can get very, yep. you know, um, people yelling at each other across the aisle when, you know, there are folks trying to work on a solution forward that kind of brings everyone along. Um, but if we bring it back to the markets, it's very interesting that you're talking about supply and supply change because um, we spoke with Marco Popic yesterday from Clock Tower, and he made the argument that um, longer term, regardless of how you feel about these things, this isn't an endorsement of this. This is just, if you look at trends, that some major trends that are happening with regard to supply, uh, for one, are going to have, uh, or they're going to be, prove really bullish for commodities. Let's have a listen to that, and then we'll talk on the other side. Everyone's decided, and by everyone, I mean the policymakers in almost every country have decided that they need to redesign supply chains away from China. So that's like a priority number one. There's this national security prerogative to redesign supply chains. I mean, China itself is doing it as well. So that's priority number one. Priority number two is apparently to um, sink a lot of capital into the green energy revolution. These two policy priorities are combining to create a very CapEx-driven cycle. Okay, what does this have to do with Russia? 
Well, what do you need to do if you want to redesign supply chains and do a green energy transition? What do you need? What is the fundamental need you need? What is the fundamental asset? You need commodities, a lot of them. And not just energy, you need metals. So we're basically redoing the 2001 to 2007 cycle uh, for policy and political reasons and ideological reasons as well. You know, basically the West has decided China's evil now and that everyone's going to be cooked alive by climate change. Those are two priorities. So if you suddenly have political risk in Russia, and it doesn't have to be something extreme, it doesn't have to be like Mel Gibson roaming the highways of Russia in a Mad Max scenario. It doesn't have to be apocalypse or warlordism. It could simply be a reversion to sort of the instability of the 1990s. It's highly unlikely that Russia will receive the sufficient capital, uh, sorry, sufficient financial and human capital to extract the supply of commodities that we're mm -hmm. going to need. Some real, I think that was such an important comment coming from Marco yesterday. And by the way, this push and pull between supply and demand, the effects of some of these longer term macroeconomic developments, the kind of thing we dive into all the time on the platform. If you are not a member, scan the QR code, come join our community so you can get access to all that good content. Um, so Rick, how are, you know, I think, I think he laid it out really well. The issue that the market seems to be grappling with. So Marco's perspective was longer term, which he was clear about. Um, but he also said short term, you could get a lot more volatility as investors try to grapple with this demand side, which is if we look at the, especially the energy market this year, really cratered oil prices. So how are you thinking about the demand side right now? Well, I, I think it was a very important clip for just that reason. Uh, I have been surprised, as you said in the lead into the show, with the strength in the U.S. economy, uh, given higher interest rates. Uh, I've been impressed on the demand side. I would have expected demand growth around the world to be slower. And, and I don't think that the strong interest that you've had in commodities is uh, just around geopolitical issues, but rather the fact that we need to continue to accommodate more and more people on earth that have more and more material needs. I think your comment with regards to volatility is right on. Uh, you have these long-term macro trends and you have these nearer-term geopolitical interest rate and economic trends. And I think the hallmark in, in the near term is going to be volatility. I think the hallmark in the long term is going to be supply shortages. Yeah, that So that's super important. That's super important because this is, and we talk all the time about time frame, <laughs> both on this show, but across Real Vision, it's part of the academy. It comes up in the academy sessions we do. You and I have talked about it before. What's your time frame? Because people know you, they know your expertise in commodities. Longer term, you've been talking about some of these structural supply shortages. So um, everyone would assume that you are always a commodity bull, but that's not the case if you narrow it down to shorter term. And we've got some shorter term questions here people want to get to. Um, so if we're in this more volatile situation, that's going to change the way people have to approach these markets, correct? Yeah, I, I think somebody needs to identify uh, what kind of investor they are. If they're a short-term speculator or a trader, you trade volatility uh, as opposed to longer-term reality. My experience in the resource business is that you either have to be a contrarian or you're going to be a victim. Uh, when you come to realize that markets work, you understand that if the oil market goes up to 150, it becomes unsustainably high uh, because the high prices encourage 
conservation and they encourage production simultaneously. More production, less consumption means lower prices. So perversely, you become more bullish when prices are weak and more bullish, uh, less bullish, pardon me, when, stri- when prices are strong. It's difficult for people to do. Uh, what I ask people to do is look for circumstances that appear statistically inevitable and worry a little less about time. Uh, accommodate themselves to being willing to wait a little bit for uh, what is inevitable, understanding that it may or may not be imminent. When we talk about developing uh, shortages over five years, as an example, as a consequence of uh, demand growth, oh, pardon me, su- uh, supply shrinkage, what we don't take into account, as an example, is the possibility of a recession. Uh, in a recession, you could have some supply shortfalls and destroy some demand, and the prices don't need to move. So investors need to take all of that into consideration, and successful investors need to take uh, successful investors in natural resources. Pardon me, need to take a fairly long time frame. Yeah, that's perfect. So, I mean, so well said. And I and I, I'm always taking notes when we. I I keep threatening to have a T-shirt contest for the show and. and co- in the resources, if you are not a contrarian, you are a victim, has got to be a contender because that is so true. But it's hard to do, right? It's hard to be that contrarian. So to that point, David is asking, do you trade around the price of gold while holding for the long term? And how do you stay patient when the price is down? Uh, I do not trade around the gold price, uh, particularly with regards to the metal itself. Uh, the metal in my own portfolio is insurance against my government, which I feel I need. Uh, the consequence of that is that I buy it just the way I'm paying uh, an insurance premium. I will trade gold stocks, although not normally based on the price of gold. I, I trade gold stocks because in my own mind, I have a range of values. And when they get towards the top end of that value, uh, particularly if I see too many buy recommendations from generalists, I tend to trade, <laughs> I, t- I tend to sell. Uh, By contrast, uh, when the conventional analysts, uh, as they occasionally do, don't remember how to spell gold, uh, I'm inclined to be on the buy side. I guess the contrarian coming out in me again. But with specific regards to gold, the metal itself, for me, it fulfills an insurance function in my portfolio, and I'm unlikely to trade it. So for anyone who may not um, be familiar with Rick's past when he says generalist versus his understanding of value, I encourage you to go look up uh, the My Life in Four Trades we did together because that will give you a a good background on just how well Rick knows this area. So he does have insight that others don't. So he is talking as somebody who specializes in this area, which I think is important um, for those who may not. And you know, you you always feel more comfortable with what you know. So just take that as a sort of cautionary note as well as a compliment to Rick. Um, so Oliver is asking, what levels are you watching for gold and silver? So even though you buy it like an insurance premium you're paying, are there levels you're currently watching for, for those precious metals right now? Not on the gold itself. Uh, but if gold perversely were to fall to 1500, uh, I would be buying the gold stocks with every spare farthing (laughs) in my existence in the near term, were the gold price to handily exceed 2,500. Uh, and I began to see 
you know, gold on the cover of uh, Investors Business Daily or something like that, I would likely trade out of some gold stocks. Uh, as I say, with regards to gold, uh, I don't have levels. It's, I, I guess there would be a point at which I wouldn't buy property and casualty insurance where the premium would be too high relative to the payoff. But as I say, I don't regard gold myself as an investment asset. I regard it as wealth and I regard it as insurance. So I don't have levels there. I'm an old fashioned gold bug. I'm not suggesting that the rest of your audience adhere to my point of views. I'm merely answering that question. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Absolutely. Um, We always say that all the guests who come on are not dispensing investment advice. They are simply talking about their thoughts on this, uh, on these issues. We always want to remind people of that. Um, Trillionex asking, what do you think of platinum supply, which is concentrated in Russia and South Africa, two countries having their specific issues? So this issue of political risk against this is another thing. We're talking about the general geopolitics, but anytime you're talking about commodities, there's an element of understanding what's happening in the country that you're operating in, which you know a thing or two about, Rick. I own platinum and palladium for precisely that reason. I note on the demand side that irrespective of the big thinkers wish to do away with the internal combustion engine, it's going to be with us. And platinum and palladium uh, are the catalysts that reduce uh, automotive uh, industrial uh, internal combustion engine smog. Uh, people don't like smog. So there's ongoing demand for platinum and palladium. It only costs $125 to provide enough platinum to sell you a Mercedes-Benz for $90,000. If the price of platinum went up, if it doubled, it wouldn't change the price of a Mercedes. The supply side is what's really interesting. As the questioner points out, platinum comes from three places, really. Russia, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. Uh, Mm. If you wanted a sort of collection of political risk for connoisseurs of political risk. You couldn't get uh, a better collection than that. Uh, South Africa experiencing extraordinary internal uh, political constraints, power supply shortages, corruption. Zimbabwe, uh, I mean, historically, it almost hasn't been a state. It's been a place on the map. Uh, And then the paragon of stability until recently, Russia, Uh, where suddenly uh, the supplies and perhaps even the internal sociology is challenged. If I had to find a a metal that had the potential for a real exogenous supply shock among every other commodity I follow, it would be platinum and palladium. Wow. Okay. Uh, We've got some people who are also bullish on that on the chat. Uh, Charles asking, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm limiting what I'm saying and getting to the questions because we have so many of them and that's what we do on this show. Uh, Charles asking, can the Saudis attempt to cut the U.S. off in order to increase short-term prices in oil? I'm jumping around a bit here with commodities, Rick, but. Uh, The United States is a consequence (laughs) of the Permian Basin uh, and a history of free market uh, attitudes is effectively self-sufficient in energy. The Saudis have very little leverage over us, but the Saudis have much greater leverage over emerging and developing countries, uh, over China and over Europe. So if the questioner's uh, question specifically regards the United States, the United States, particularly in conjunction with Canada and Mexico, 
uh, are amazingly insulated from what the what the Saudis might be able to do to our domestic market. But the Saudis do have the ability to impact the world market and impact it substantially. And we are connected to a much greater degree than many people realize. Are you surprised? We had that move a while back where they decided to go it alone without their OPEC plus partners. Did that surprise you? What did you make of that? I, I thought it was amusing. I think it might be for internal uh, mm -hmm. political discussion. I think the Saudis have come to understand over the last 50 years that it's not too hard to manipulate the oil prices up when they're going up anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's not too difficult to manipulate them down when markets are working. But the the Saudis and the rest of OPEC have learned that markets work. Uh, markets end up being bigger than governments. Governments can impact markets in the near term. But the truth is, when the oil price gets too high, we produce more uh, and we consume less. Uh, and the Saudis, I think, have come to understand uh, bitterly that markets work. Do you know, we 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 saw that uh, reversal in energy prices. Uh, there had been an expectation that we we're going into recession, but as you just pointed out, U.S., it, we're not seeing it yet. Everyone keeps pushing it back. Are you surprised we haven't seen more of a response? Or is it just that the market still thinks, is the market telling us that despite the analysts pushing it back, they're still convinced there's trouble ahead. They're looking at China. They're worried about a slowdown in China. What is the oil market telling us? I think that the oil market is being schizophrenic uh, as a consequence of policy. I think that the fairly strong economy has has surprised everybody, but in particular the oil industry and perhaps myself. Uh, I, I think too that uh, this lack of sustaining capital investment in places other than the Permian Basin is coming home to bite us. Uh, you know, if you look back 15 years ago, uh, two of the biggest oil exporters in the world were Venezuela and Mexico, uh, neither of which are forces on the world market. The Saudis uh, and others, including the United States, uh, have had to uh, fill that bill. It's important to note, too, uh, that despite the big thinkers' wishes, the use of uh, oil and gas as power sources and as transportation fuel is growing rapidly in other parts of the world. The impact that you saw with regards to the urbanization of China in the period 2000 to say 2010 is being repeated to a lesser degree around the world, the urbanization of emerging and frontier markets and humankind's wonderful ability to lift a billion and a half people from dire poverty to merely being poor is one of the things that's continued to drive demand for oil and gas and will continue to demand to drive demand for oil and gas. Yeah, you have to look at this as a as a global picture. And James is is asking that although he's asking about currency, so I'm not not sure if you're watching this. I know you watch everything, but he's asking is the US dollar about to get some serious competition from BRICS in July? No. Uh <laughs> my friend Doug Casey describes the US dollar as a as a uh, I owe you nothing. A BRICS currency like the euro would be a who owes you nothing. Uh, if you look at the strength of the individual currencies in those countries, if you look at their government deficits, if you look at their trade deficits, if you look at the incontrovert the inconvertibility of their securities, the illiquidity of their internal uh, uh, debt markets, uh, as troubled 
as the U.S. dollar is, it is, as again, Doug Casey says, by far the prettiest mayor at the slaughterhouse. Uh, and the consequence of that, not because necessarily of the strength of the U.S. economy, but rather because of the weakness of the competitors, mm. the U.S. dollar will remain supreme. If you were going to be a creditor, if you were going to loan money to a serial defaulter like Argentina, <laughs> would you give them the double advantage of lending to them in a currency uh, that loses its purchasing power by 50% a year? I don't reckon. Uh, so my belief is that the US dollar remains, perhaps undeservedly, the world's reserve currency for a very long time. I would hasten to add, and your viewers will hate this, but that's okay. The worst enemy that the US dollar has is the US government. We've weaponized the currency. Uh, we've used the currency to try and impose our will extra extraterritorially on other countries. We have forced them to look for alternatives to the US dollar. Uh, it, it isn't any, any wound uh, to the U.S. exorbitant privilege that hasn't been self-inflicted. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of folks, uh, anyone out in the Bitcoin world, I'm sure will um, that will resonate with them for sure. Um, uh, any thoughts on uranium? We have a lot of, we have some questions. We also have a lot of chat and people going back and forth among themselves about uranium, people in Europe not feeling very good about it. Uh, what are your thoughts on uranium, Rick? I'm a uranium bull. Uh, maybe I should describe myself as a uranium beneficiary. I've been in that market for a very long time, and it's treated me extraordinarily well. Uh, I would point out to you that the catalyst that I talked about in Real Vision a year and a half ago, which is to say uh, Japanese restarts, has begun. Uh, so I don't need to say I don't know when it's going to happen anymore. It's going to happen in 2023. It's happening with us. You can see the increase in the spot price. You can see, too, more transactions taking place in the term market, which while opaque, has higher basic pricing than the spot market. So the uranium bull market, rather than being something in the future, uh, is something in the present. Uh, I think it starts slowly, but I think it's an extremely fertile area to invest. It's interesting to me that uh, many former opponents uh, of nuclear, looking at Japan as an example, where five years ago, 30% of the electorate favored restarting the uh, nuclear power plants, and now 65% favor it. Uh, if you look at Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, saying the only hope that we have uh, of reaching the carbon protocol uh, uh, guidelines is nuclear energy. There's beginning to be, in addition to the economic need for uh, uranium, the political and narrative support uh, around the uranium business. This isn't something that's happening in the future. It's something that's happening right now. I note too, in the stupidly named Inflation Reduction Act, uh, <laughs> that the US federal government, which has for 25 years vilified uranium, has now decided to subsidize it. Uh, I <laughs> This feels paradoxic to me and I'm, uncomfortable, I guess, being on the side of the state. Uh, but the truth is, uh, ha having them, uh, while I don't want to receive their subsidy, uh, <laughs> having them no longer vilify the uranium industry, I think is useful. Yeah. Yeah. There, there has been, it's interesting you say that because a lot of this is, again, Rick is always kind of looking past and, and trying to 
Um, and you you have, I think, some insights into some of these markets that are a bit opaque that other people don't see um, because people have kind of been giving up on uranium. They've been losing faith. They've been thinking that this, um, all this enthusiasm that we saw for nuclear after the energy crisis last year in Europe and 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 based on all the conversations uh, around, um, you know, cleaner energy, that this was nuclear as time. And then they kind of lost faith in that. But you're saying it's don't lose faith that it is happening. About four years ago, uh, I think, and perhaps as a consequence of my former employer, Sprott, uh, initiating the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, the uranium uh, spot price increased from circa $20 to circa $40, $45. And that plus the incredible narrative around uranium and investors' memory of the unbelievable <laughs> bull market in uranium uh, in the 2000 to 2008 timeframe caused a poor pun, uh, uranium equity prices to explode upwards. Mm. There were expectations in the uranium equity market four years ago that couldn't be sustained. Uh, markets worked. People who were drawn into the market by the narrative rather than being drawn into the market by the math before the narrative ended up being disappointed because they couldn't have helped being disappointed mm. when the price of a small uranium equity that has no uranium uh, other than as a component of the name on the share certificate increases in price by four or five hundred percent because the underlying commodity, which they don't have any of, doubles. You have a silly circumstance uh, and people who buy that circumstance deserve to get punished. Right. And we've seen this before. This is what, you know, make sure you understand the underlying um, because there's a there's a mega trend and then there's all the volatility and froth right. and sometimes you know people going out we talk about this a lot with ai right now because it's attached to every single headline as you and i discussed right before we came on air we have so many good questions um as you can see we're we are out of time some of them are asking about um i just want to mention them because they're so good jonathan talking about how does rick scale or build positions in say a palladian energy i know he funded it at one cent a year ago. Derek asking, when are you planning to open your bank? We can't get them to them all on the show today, but hopefully the keen-eyed uh, watchers, if you're seeing the promo that we put ahead of time, we're flagging the fact that Rick is having a symposium in July in Florida, I think the 23rd to the 27th, right? Where you're going to be there. What, what's going on there, Rick? Tell us a little bit about it. This will be the 23rd year that I've put on that symposium. So first of all, the symposiums stood the test of time. Uh, we had to do it virtually during COVID. Uh, so why has the symposium worked? Uh, I would suggest the value proposition comes down to a few things. The first is that we have great big picture thinkers, but not the kind of big picture thinkers that you'd see on you know, CBC or CNBC, more the kind that you'd like to see on Real Vision, the Jim Rickards of the world, the Nomi Princes of the world, the Bill Bonners of the world. Uh, if you agree with that point of view, which you seldom see in the mainstream media, what we have for you are great analysts and portfolio managers, people who didn't parachute into, as an example, the oil and gas space because they failed as, uh, as a supermarket analysts, but rather people who have been in the industry through thick and thin, 30 years through bull markets and bear markets. But better than that, Maggie, uh, we have a group called the Living Legends entrepreneurs who have built multi-billion dollar natural resource companies from scratch. It's important to, less, to listen to how they did it because it teaches you how to be a better investor. And they tell you how they became better investors. And by the way, 
we always make them give us each two or three picks about companies that they're not involved in so that we can use <laughs> their expertise. That's very smart. <laughs> for specific recommendations. Well, you know, I've been around a long time, Maggie. I got a couple of things right. Beyond that, you know, at most conferences, the qualification to be an exhibitor is a check that cashes. Uh, to be a sponsor at our conference, you have to be owned in an account that's managed by the sponsors of the conference. There's no guarantee, unfortunately, because I own a stock, it goes up. But there is a guarantee that we know the exhibitors well enough that we own them. Hmm. The final guarantee is this. If you come to the Natural Resources Investment Symposium, either physically coming to Boca Raton or virtually watching it from home around the world, you will be able to watch the tapes at your leisure for six months after the conference because there's too much programming to absorb in 50 hours over four days. And the final guarantee is this. If for any reason, att attending virtually uh, or physically, you don't think that you got your money's worth, I'll give you your money back. Absolute positive money back guarantee. All right. well, I, I love that. Listen, I think that we've heard a, a lot. We, we have people who come on who just say, listen, the commodities are, they're very specific. It's not my area of expertise. You can get really, really killed in them if you don't know what you're doing. So I feel Accurate. like it's got to be part of all of our portfolios right now. We we hear from you, from Marco, from all these different people that it's, there are all of these sort of structural issues and kind of megatrends coming at us. We didn't even get to talk about infrastructure, all the infrastructure building that's going to be going on um, and, and what the impact that's going to have. So we all have to understand it. So love the fact that you're getting everybody together to do this, Rick. I think it'll be really interesting. So if we didn't get a chance to answer your questions, maybe you want to roll up and hang out with Rick for a little while in Florida. Uh, and you can catch his ear and he can tell you all about the bank and how he's going to build a position or how he did build a position in Palladian Energy. Rick, we never have enough time with you. So great to see you. I look forward to be invited back to answer more questions. I enjoy the process, Maggie. I enjoy particularly the fact that you're prepared to ask me these questions. And I love the clip that you guys had to set this interview up. Yeah, it, it, it really worked out. Well, it's on everyone's mind. Commodities are on everyone's mind, given what's going on in the world. So we were lucky to be able to have you for the time we did today, Rick. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks to all of you for the fantastic conversation and questions that you sent in. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Extended. I believe Brent Donnelly is going to be with us, which is always great. So get your questions and thinking cap on ready for that. And as always, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.